Welcome to Gov Actually, the podcast about how government works. How it actually works. I'm Dan Tangerlini, Chief Financial Officer of the Emerson Collective, and this is the FedScoop Radio Network. And I'm Danny Werfel from the Boston Consulting Group. We launched this pod to try to get beyond the personalities and the politics. Right. We want to talk about how things actually get done in the government, the people who do it, and the challenges they face. So let's talk. So Danny, we're back for another great episode, and I think this will be a great episode this time, of Gov Actually. We've got a fantastic uh, guest in Marty Edwards. Marty works for Tenable, and he works on cybersecurity um, and uh, operational technology issues. He also works on industrial control systems, uh, an expert who collaborates with industry, government, and academia to raise awareness of the growing security risks impacting critical infrastructure and the need to take steps to mitigate them. So I think that's a big hint about what we're going to talk about today, the colonial pipeline hack, uh, infrastructure vulnerability in general, and cybersecurity overall. Marty is a 30-year industry veteran uh, who's won a variety of awards. Sadly, the Kennedy Center Honors is not one of them, I've learned uh, earlier. Not yet. Not yet? Okay. Yes. Um, served as the uh, Global Director of Education at the International Society of Automation, as well as uh, the longest serving director of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security's Industrial Control System Cyber Emergency Response Team, the ICS CERT. Um, Maybe he can tell us a little bit about what they do and how that works. So without further ado, uh, I give you uh, Marty Edwards. Yeah, Marty, thanks for joining us. I have a million questions. but let me start with 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 one, which is, um, was this a bigger as big a story as you thought it was going to be? Like, it seemed like it crept up on people, but it's it seems like a massive story that someone hacked the pipeline and stopped gas from flowing to the U.S. You know, but it didn't feel like it was breaking news in the way that I would have thought if you would have told me, a, you know, a few weeks earlier that it was going to happen. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. So thank you for having me on your show. And uh, thanks for the great introduction. Um, you know, I think if you're in the business, in the cybersecurity business, especially like myself in the uh, industrial or critical infrastructure area, this really was expected. We, we've been um, watching this for quite a while. These systems do have some um, challenges from a security perspective. The criminals are getting more brazen and uh, adventuresome, I guess. So when it hit the news, I think what really magnified the intensity or the understanding of this issue is that it's something that every American can understand. They, they completely understand when there's no gas at the fuel pump, what that means to them. And cybersecurity is such a complicated um, topic that that the average American just doesn't completely understand what it means when somebody says there's been a ransomware attack, and uh, since they since they they felt it in their wallet and they felt it at the fuel pump, it really hit home for them, and I think that really magnified the the overall impact or impression from this specific event. Can you give us the plain language explanation of what happened here, like like what what exactly transpired? that caused this this event? There's still a lot of information that's coming out um, about this event. So what I will uh, tell you is what I know from what Colonial has disclosed uh, publicly and you know what the commentary that's going on uh, on the Hill, et cetera, um, has been. 
So what, what we believe happened is that criminal ransomware operators, so this is a, a organization known as, as DarkSide, allegedly, that uh, somehow intruded into Colonial Pipeline's IT systems. So Are they US-based, this, 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 um, this group? Or do we not? The, in, the intelligence community in the FBI has issued statements that they believe they're an Eastern European Russian based organization. Um, so they intruded into the enterprise network. So these are the networks that run email and accounting in Colonial, right? This isn't the highly specialized uh, sort of black box computers that actually run the pumps and the valves and, and that are on the pipeline itself. Um, once that happened, they uh, use a, a method called ransomware, which essentially means they lock up the computers that are on that network and they hold them for ransom. So it's an extortion type of event, right? Hey, we're holding your computer hostage. If you want the data that's on these computers, you need to pay us. And uh, once that happened, our understanding is that Colonial um, now lost the ability to uh, you know, bill their customers, perform accounting functions, you know, routine communications inside of their company. So even though the pipeline operations, you know, the, the actual control system that, that turns the pumps on and off, uh, we believe was not impacted, they proactively shut the pipeline down because they just couldn't manage it. And, and that's a pretty common occurrence. We've seen that before in other industrial ransomware uh, cases where the company will take uh, a preventative action just to ensure that it's being shut down in a safe and reliable way. So that so that's interesting. This was their um, their ERP programs, their accounting systems, their emails. This wasn't their SCADA systems that are actually running the pipeline. So in theory, um, the pipeline could have continued to be operated. They just were. They wouldn't have been able to bill for each. They wouldn't have been able to bill for it. That's fascinating. So, well, and there's some other aspects to that too, right? And I, and I uh, want to emphasize: we still sure. don't really know. We all yeah. we know is what we have from uh, state stated from Colonial. You know, the the call that they made most likely was based on the fact that they felt they could no longer operate it safely. So, I mean, if you think about procedures, things like um, how do you do a certain uh, work task, those procedures are probably in a Microsoft Word document on a computer mm -hmm. somewhere right. on an engineer's wow. uh, machine, right? And if that machine was no longer available, perhaps they didn't have access to those procedures. So, you know, so there's, a lot, to, there's a lot to unpack money. here. Yeah. yeah, not just yeah. money, risk mitigation. So, so when, when did we become, I mean, what, what, can you find a, could you flip back through your calendar and say what year we became so dependent on, on, you know, uh, a word document that, uh, that engineers don't know how to, you know, flip open and close the, the valves on the, on the on the on the pipeline anymore when did when did this vulnerability when when did it flip uh, i would say that that individuals such as myself have been sounding these alarm bells for the better part of 15 years wow. uh, i got recruited out of private industry i was a control system engineer so i was one of those engineers that had that laptop with those procedures on on it um, and I got recruited into the Department of Energy and Department of Homeland Security in uh, about 2006. So it's been going on a long time. But I think what's happened is over that period of time, we've just slowly 
become more dependent on all of these computerized systems. The systems have also become much more complex and intertwined. So we use this term uh, convergence. You know, so these networks once upon a time were, were almost completely separated, but now they're, they're intertwined with all of these other business networks. There's data sharing between organizations and companies. And you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a fact of life. It's a necessary part of business now, but we haven't necessarily invested across the board in securing them the way we should. Let me ask the government uh, angle question, which is, you, know, you think about um, after 9-11, there was a determination that we didn't have the effective whole of government interconnectedness to, uh, to, to deal with the type of terror attack that happened. Do we, is that an issue from your vantage point that right now, are the federal agencies effectively integrated and communicating with one another to deal with something like this? Because this seems to be kind of a, you know, it, it happened, it was serious, but it seems like it's maybe tip of iceberg of what we can expect in the future. Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, many cybersecurity professionals, 9-11 uh, was the catalyzing event that drove us into security. So, I mean, um, it's certainly true in my case. I mean, I looked at that event specifically and I went, oh, wow, we need to protect our critical infrastructure and the computers that run it. Um, so I'll say that when I first got into government, um, there was a lot of uh, silos and not a lot of, of talking between the different departments and agencies. But you know, when the Department of Homeland Security was created, it was created from many different agencies and groups, right? So that fusion of, of bringing everything together, I think is a lot better now than it was, you know, a decade plus ago. Uh, that being said, I, I still believe that there's opportunities for us to do better, right? And so I really uh, am optimistic about what I see coming off of uh, Capitol Hill. Um, the current administration seems to have some good initiatives to uh, bring cyber front and center. You know, we had the, the president's uh, speech here not that uh, long ago that, you know, the cybersecurity community was very um, impressed that, you know, the word cyber was used actually in a presidential address. And that, that typically hasn't happened before. What are the, what are the techniques that operators like Colonial, uh, regulators like... Um, DOT, who, who oversees pipeline safety, uh, coordinative bodies like DHS, what are, what are the steps that they should be taking to recognize the seriousness of this threat and, and, and respond to it? How do you prepare and, and how do you make sure that this kind of thing doesn't happen again? Yeah, and, and you know, as you are aware, you know, most of the infrastructure in the United States is privately owned and operated, right? So you have a limited amount of influence that the government can, um, can make in these, in these uh, situations. So I think it's a, it's, we have to expand our definition of public-private partnership. You know, it's no longer adequate to just have an information sharing program. It's actually sitting down at the table designing the, the systems that we're going to use to protect these environments, um, having some continuous and real-time information available to the government. You know, so I kind of think of it as um, 
almost like a, uh, you know, flight controller, uh, air traffic controller, you know, those are our, our government types of jobs where they're looking at where all of the airplanes are in the sky. We should have similar visibility into the systems that our lives depend on. So if that's energy, such as electricity or natural gas, or in this case, refined fuels, or if that's water and wastewater, transportation, you know, the government should have some visibility into these sectors that are the so-called lifeline sectors. There, there is the Pipeline and Hazardous Material Safety Administration in the US DOT. Um, is this a big part of their mission or is it, is it going to be, is this coming, is this coming to a, what is that, PIMSA near you? PIMSA, PIMSA. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that, you know, we're speaking specifically on pipelines today because actually pipelines is one of the more complex regulatory environments that we have, I think, in the nation. So you have Department of Transportation, as you've referenced, that's involved you have the Department of Homeland Security, Transportation Security Administration, TSA has some involvement and oversight. Department of Energy has some oversight because of the fuels aspect. And you can even get Coast Guard involved when the pipeline terminates at a maritime port. You know, so you've got all of these different departments and agencies. I and think the, the private sector could benefit by having some uh, clarity in, in who's on first or who's doing what in this area. So um, I think there's more to come there. Yeah, you know what's interesting too, I, I guess I'm a little bit surprised, maybe I shouldn't be on this kind of notion of ransom and pay us versus there being like a political um, effort. I guess with all of the stories over the last four or five years on uh, election hacking and Russian interference in our election, it, I, I'm like geared towards this notion that that these types of disruptions are politically motivated rather than financially motivated. From your vantage point, like is the cyber threats that we face, like what's the pie chart? Uh, do we know is like, is it mostly political? And this was kind of like the exception, is it mixed in terms of what, what incentivizes these actors to do what they do? Yeah, it's a great question. And attribution or identifying specifically who's behind an individual attack is extremely complicated. You know, the entire U.S. national security apparatus spends the majority of its time trying to figure that out. Um, what I will say is that there certainly are cases where nation states are, are sort of challenging each other in, uh, in cyberspace, so to speak. But I think all of the data that we have, at least in the public sector, um, points to the vast majority of it being uh, criminal enterprises. So this is really about following the money. Um, the ransomware specifically has, we've seen a huge uptick in the past you know, several years. And I believe we're seeing an uptick in um, industrial operations specifically being targeted simply because they're worth more. They're more valuable than you know, um, the dentist office in your hometown, you know, having their records encrypted is worth something to a criminal. But when you can stop um, the fuel transport on the entire East Coast, you know, you've got a much sort of more lucrative target. Uh, so I, I believe that this, this is just going to continue. And I think it's going to take a concerted effort by governments around the world to kind of uh, clamp down on that. 
Do you think the rise of cryptocurrency has contributed to the ability for these uh, ransomware uh, attacks to be successful? Absolutely. The, the sort of uh, inherent untraceability of the crypto, cryptocurrencies are uh, certainly something that's been an enabler here. And that's why we see a number of uh, discussions going on about, well, you know, it can be untraceable or untrackable, but is that the way we want it to be? And so can we put some sort of banking, traditional international banking controls on some of these transactions just as a, a throttle uh, to, to, to let us uh, choke that down a little bit. It raises this interesting point also around, it feels like it's all, it, our option is mostly defense, you know, with cyber. Like, cause it's like, at least that, that's the way, maybe I'm wrong in my hypothesis, but can, do you, can you go investigate and arrest these people? Um, if they're international actors operating out of Russia or, or some, some country in Eastern Europe, doesn't seem feasible. What do I know? And then also the next question is, is like, and do we, uh, do we go on the offense? You know, do we cyber attack them? That also seems to not to resonate. So it really is, it feels like 99.9% .9 of the response is shoring up our defense. Um, but I don't know, Marty, what do you think? I think it's a combination. I think governments and law enforcement agencies around the world you know, are doing a lot of collaboration. So I know my friends in law enforcement uh, are, are trying to, to get behind the actors, behind the organized crime syndicates that are running these types of things. But as you point out, there are sort of uh, safe harbor countries that they tend to, to operate out of that don't have extradition agreements or other agreements in place. So with that being said, it can be very difficult to, to wrap your arms around this. Uh, from the perspective of offense, I mean, I, I spent my entire government career on the defensive side of cybersecurity. Um, one of the challenges you have in cyber and using sort of cyber weaponry or using um, cyber as, a, as an offensive tool is that when you release a kinetic weapon, you know, you drop a bomb on a, on a building that, that houses, uh, you know, the bad people, right? That bomb is usually destroyed in the blast, right? So there's no sort of forensic evidence. So, so your adversary can't rebuild that bomb and, and understand the technology that you used. But in cyber, when you release a weapon that way, it's going to be captured by, you know, anyone that's interested on the internet, right? And so it can be replayed back to you. And I think that that really changes the calculus for how you use cyber strategically in an offensive way. Uh, I think that countries are still learning how to do that. I think there's a lot of discussions in, in significant policymaking bodies and coordinating bodies around the world as to what sort of norms or treaties or agreements that we have to have in place between countries. But quite frankly, it's still in a very um, infantile state, I think, from from that perspective. Is, is there a scenario that you worry about the most? Is there something that kind of keeps you up at night as a, a about, you know, if, if we continue to not mount our defenses, what, what kind of vulnerability we have as a society? Yeah, you know, um, I, I often joke, I think it's a coping mechanism that I wouldn't be in the job that I was in if I, if I had trouble sleeping at night. <laughs> There's too many things to worry about. But when I look back 
at, at where we've started from and where we've come in, in critical infrastructure, cybersecurity, we still have so many of these systems that just, you know, they've been put in place decades ago. They've never been upgraded or modernized. Um, they've been interconnected to, you know, all these business networks and, and are accessible in some cases from the internet. We saw that in the Oldsmar water facility incident, right? The, the remote access to that facility was just on the internet for somebody to, you know, walk in the front door. So I believe we need to have a sort of a concerted effort that definitely has some oversight and some involvement from the government that identifies what are these critical um, systems that we depend on as, as Americans for our, our livelihoods, and, and then make sure that those companies or organizations have access to some resources to improve their security. So we see things being discussed like grant programs, um, you know, uh, ability for them to uh, recoup their investments in cybersecurity. And that's what it's going to take because uh, oftentimes it just, you know, the business motivator isn't there for them to do it themselves. And, and it's really something that we have to do, you know, as a societal issue. It's, it's no longer just company A's profitability versus company B's profitability. It's something that we have to invest in as a society. Um, what can what can individuals do, or what should individuals be thinking about how they can protect themselves while while we organize ourselves a little better societally to protect our our institutions? Yeah, it's it's difficult. I think becoming um, just becoming more cyber aware that you know it's it's like you don't want to open your front door to uh, strangers, right? And, and especially after dark, I mean. Nobody's going to send you an email that says, click here for your IRS tax refund, right? The government is not going to communicate to you in that way. Um, UPS or FedEx or any one of these shipping companies is not going to send you a text message that says, you know, your package is delayed, click here to reroute it or check the status or whatever. Uh, unless you've specifically signed up to get some communications, just don't click on all those links that, that pop up, right? I mean, use a little bit of uh, sort of uh, diligence, I guess, in, in, going, in going through those sorts of things. If it looks too good to be true, it probably is. Yeah, uh, that's a lot of, uh, as a former IRS person, it's a lot of uh, um, marketing and, 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 and outreach you have to do around scams and really ramp up people's understanding of what of, of these ideas of these scams that are coming out they, they get more creative each day they do you know it's unbelievable i i mean i i get them you get the phone call that that goes into voicemail that says you know there's a warrant for your arrest and you have to mash in your your social security number or your credit card number or you have to pay 100 bucks i guarantee you law enforcement is not going to send you a text to say you're under arrest right there's somebody will show up at your front door with a warrant it's it's it people just have to i think just pause a little bit and think about is this really the way that this works and then just you know, if you're on the phone with these people, just ask them the questions or, you know, hang up. I, yeah. it, it's, it's, it's frustrating, but it's something that we're all going to have to get better at. I also think uh, people need to know that the, neither the law enforcement nor the IRS accepts payment in Apple's uh, Apple iTunes cards. So, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, you're Mark, not, a, I, you're, you're in an important meeting and I need to get you a hundred dollar gift card. Right. And then I'm the only one that can do that. So please send it to me. Yeah. Exactly. 
Not yet, anyway, Dan. Not yet. Not yet. Not yeah. Yet. Um, so Great. last last question, Marty. Just going back to Colonial, it, one of the things, and I'm wondering if this is something we need to be pushing more through federal regulation or otherwise. It's like, what is the like, what is the backup plan if you know if these scenarios play out? So if this happens, do X. If that happens, do Y. In order to keep the lights on, or in this case, keep the gas flowing. Are companies that are in these very critical soft spots, are, are they accountable sufficiently? Are they regulated sufficiently to make sure they have these uh, these plans in place? Yeah, I think I think there's a balance between sort of voluntary uh, adoption of of security improvement measures and some sort of. Uh, requirements in the form of regulation. I think that's an ongoing debate and it's going to be ongoing for some time. Uh, what I will touch on uh, is you asked, you know, what are, what are companies doing? There, there's a, a discipline that's uh, called consequence-based engineering, essentially. And what it is, what it is starting to uh, investigate is that for some of these systems, systems that are so critical that we as a society need them to function no matter what. Um, we should be considering what we call non-cyber measures, right? So um, a lot of people have, have said that this is, you know, sort of going back in time to use simpler um, protection mechanisms, but we should, I guess, essentially always have the, the capability to run the, to run the system in manual. So if the computer is not uh, available, we should have a way to make sure that the fuel still flows, the power is still on, the water still comes out of your faucet. And so there's a, there's a whole new era, area of engineering that's looking at, you know, how do we put those basic protection mechanisms back into these systems? Because quite frankly, we've, we've taken them out for the sake of uh, automation and reduced manpower and things like that. And, and we need to look at selectively in highly critical applications, bringing them back in. Yeah, it feels like this should be the fire drill. You know, it's like, okay, what do we do? Um, and let's simulate these. And do we have, do we have things documented sufficiently? Are our phone trees working? And what do we do if the phone system goes down? Like just all of these plays. And it may be that you need to cut things off if certain things happen, but preparation seems to be, hopefully this event will trigger a, um, some thinking around how to, how to prepare differently for future events. Totally agree. And, and I really like the fire drill or the firefighter analogy here because a lot of people don't really realize that a firefighter spends hopefully very little of their time fighting actual fires. They spend more time on prevention more time on training, more time on exercising and drills so that organizations are prepared when something like this happens, they instinctively know what to do. So in the cases of ransomware like this, it really, um, companies need to rely on their disaster recovery plans, their backup, you know, um, capabilities. And, and those, those plans are no good if you've just written them on paper and they've sat on the shelf for years and years. You need to take them and dust them off and actually try them, right? So you have to do these sort of exercises and training, uh, training drills, as you said. 
Marty, we really appreciate you joining us this morning, um, terrifying us a little bit, but also giving us some uh, reassuring ideas about how we can protect ourselves and, and, and the steps we need to take as a society to protect our institutions and our infrastructure. We really, uh, really appreciate you joining us. It's been my pleasure. Yep, thank you, Marty. Gov Actually is brought to you by the good folks at the FedScoop Radio Network. Be sure to check out what is happening on the forefront of government technology innovation at FedScoop as well as the most important issues facing cybersecurity professionals at CyberScoop. GovActually is also supported by the Boston Consulting Group and the Center for Public Impact. All right, Danny, uh, we're back. I had to go and take a little bit of a walk to uh, uh, get my head straight after that conversation. Um, I think Marty gave us a, a bunch to think about. Yeah, I mean, my first question to him, did you feel that too? Like, it feels like this should have been a bigger story. I mean, obviously, it's just kind of like, crept up more like hey the gas lines are getting long and oh yeah it's this thing that happened i don't know it just it felt like and i'm a bit of a news junkie so maybe i'm not the right caliber yeah i i, I wonder if it's a couple of things one um people are no longer freak you know are no longer freaked out or surprised by some kind of cyber attack we're all kind of as he said batting away uh all kinds of exciting offers that come across our our general email um, the Colonial Pipeline, a vital piece of infrastructure, is not the only one, mm -hmm. um, and that there was some, you know, kind of panic buying and whatnot um, that created a moment of um, constraint. I think maybe people coming out of the pandemic, you know, to the extent that we're coming out of it, um, are also maybe a little, it's a little harder to, to get people riled up. I mean, I just, everyone's been through so much over the last year. And then, and then maybe also just the there's still in a we're still in a world of depressed demand on the resources. If it had come and hit, you know, in a traditional summer um, driving season, then maybe the impact would have been swifter and more dramatic. And oh, those are good words. The panic buying is always like, you know, surprised me. It's like they're predicting four inches of snow. So yeah. now there's no more milk available at the supermarket. It's a weird, I yeah. get it. The logic makes sense. I just, totally I, human I mean, I thought about going out and getting gas. Like, wait, 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 don't do that. That's just, you know, that's just making things worse. Well, I, was I think going to get gas is fine, but like I saw like pictures of people with gas cans and filling yeah. up multiple gas cans. Exactly. And it's just yeah. like, all right, maybe go fill your tank. That's fine. But I saw a picture of a car burned to the ground because someone had filled the car oh, up gosh. in gas tanks. And um, yeah, I was joking that I was thinking that we should run out and buy toilet paper just to get everyone wondering, wait a minute, what is Yeah, zig and zag. You got to go. That's fine. <laughs> someone um, will be like, hey, that guy's buying up toilet paper. Wait, 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 wait. I heard he was buying toilet paper. Um, uh, so uh, I, I, I think it's super interesting, the level of interdependencies that have been built around. I mean, you know, I, I remember when the internet wasn't exactly a thing, you know, I, that, you know. Before Al Gore? Yeah, exactly. Uh, it was actually, yeah, it was before the Gore, the Gore uh, vice presidency. When I was working at OMB, I remember we got an email. And I remember my boss saying, like, look, don't send me anything on that email. I'm not sure that's going to catch on. Um, and, uh, uh, it's just interesting to see then in just, you know, we'll say 25, 30 years, how tremendously, you know, this just been completely baked into every aspect of our, 
of our societal systems and infrastructure. Yeah, and think about like, you know, think about us right now, remote, networked, like people are not only, you know, in, in the last year, people have relied on a functioning network to do almost everything job related. And so if anything, you know, in, the pandemic has furthered our reliance uh, on technology and made it even more instrumental. And so it just, you know, how do you make sure that, um, that we're all taking this as seriously as we need to take it? Because in some ways, I think this was major, but, but minor enough to potentially serve as a healthy check engine light or warning light. Like we need to like really make sure we're prepared because it could have been much, much worse. Yeah, it could have been like a little, that little yellow light on your fuel gauge telling you that um, You're trying uh, to make a pun here. I, I'm trying. Right, really, really. It's a um, bit of a stretch there. But uh, it, it does remind me in in his book, The Black Swan. Nicholas Taleb talks about how um, systems that become increasingly interreliant on each other, which you would think would create stability, actually over time, uh, as they become increasingly connected and interwoven, and frankly more complicated. Um, they become actually over time more vulnerable and therefore less stable. And I think what you saw here was this interesting cascade. In the past, the billing system wouldn't have necessarily had anything to do with the pipes and valves. And here, ultimately, you know, they shut it down to, um, well, you know, one could be cynical and say just to make sure that they got paid. And, and another thing is to make sure that it was all operated safely. I, I think they're saying the later. I've seen some press saying the former. Yeah, no, I think it's, it was probably a combination of factors that led to a tough decision that they had to uh, to, to shut the pipeline down. But it it seems like the you know shifting to the government's responsibilities here, the government should is well positioned, I think, to look across the critical infrastructure of the U.S. and develop kind of a risk map, if you will. Um, and it won't be perfect, but you get you, it can get better and better. And to understand kind of where we should be doing public-private partnerships. I mean, I mentioned regulation, but you only need to regulate if it's you know if it's absolutely necessary. But working with industry to say these are where you need to have these backup plans. This is where you need to you know delink certain things because of these events, or at least be prepared for if they're delinked. Um, who else but the but the U.S. government could could organize that type of of, of cross cutting view uh, to make sure that that we're thinking about it as an enterprise? Well, I, I also think these things become a matter of national security. So um, at this time, it may have been um, some hackers looking for five million dollars in Bitcoin. Next time, it could be some state actor who's just looking to, you know, cause disruption, mayhem, and panic buying within, you know, the east coast of the United States. There's the possibility that uh, this was both of those things, you know, a uh, an attempt to determine what level of intrusion and chaos can be caused through what looked like a, you know, traditional ransomware attack. You just gave me an idea for a future podcast. Like we should talk about cryptocurrency. Oh, I was, I was, yeah, I was there with you. The cryptocurrency thing is so fascinating. Yeah. 
you know, I, I was listening to a great um, New York Times, the daily podcast on Dogecoin. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, you know, there's uh, a lot of, you know, there's a recent uh, press about the environmental impact of mining for Bitcoin. Um, I have some friends who are really interested in the blockchain for real estate and as a way of protecting and guarding uh, uh, people's ability to uh, make clear their longstanding ownership uh, or connection to real estate and other property. In, in certain um, societies, that's been the, the biggest form of uh, state appropriation of people's individual resources is the taking of real estate. And so if there's no, you know, you burn all the land records. And at that point, you know, you reset everything with a, with a blockchain, you have the ability of permanently kind of establishing that ownership. But with cryptocurrency running on the blockchain, you also then have the possibility of people, uh, you know, using ransomware as a way to shut down pipelines. It's so abstract. I think like, first of all, I think this podcast uh, that Marty did a nice job of kind of like just breaking down what this thing is. Cause sometimes the news breaks and you miss a couple of, and you're like, I don't understand what, what happened. And then it's hard to find, you know kind of the source article that explains everything. I would be really impressed if we could do a podcast that explain what blockchain is. In a, uh, in a in plain language, so maybe we should think about um, that. But then also bridging to that, what is the what is what is what are the implications for the government? What yeah. are the what are the implications for the government of cryptocurrency growing and scaling and being a more uh, uh, important and material part of our financial system? And what are the implications of of blockchain and how how can that be leveraged by the government? But also, what risks does it present to government missions? Because um, it seems like the world's evolving very quickly. And as you and I both know, the government doesn't always evolve as quickly as it needs. No, to. and I think in many ways, the government's job is uh, to try to maintain some consistency and some solidity and some, uh, so let's let the non-government sector innovate and experiment and ultimately you know, have successes and failures Whereas the tolerance for failures on the government side is very low because the implications, you know, the, the implications for people's lives and livelihoods are very high. So there's a lot of reason why you want a solid, consistent, um, shall we say, slowly evolving government. The problem is the speed and pace of innovation is so fast now that that, you know, that disconnect becomes much more pronounced and painful. And, and dangerous in the sense that um, as the government kind of tries to even get their head around how does a cryptocurrency fit into the broader financial system, it's out there creating its own weather patterns with things like uh, ransomware attacks. Yeah, you know, it's so, so interesting. There's, this, there's so many different versions and visions of what our government is and is capable of. There's, there's the v- version that it's like, Dan, after we hang up, the government's clearly going to listen in to our uh, lunch conversation. Well, I'm hoping they're listening to the podcast. Yeah, well, and then there's a, a, a version of it where it's like the government doesn't even know what a podcast is. You know, there's yeah. uh, the 30 years behind, you know, so our, what are we? Are we 30 years ahead as a government or are we 30 years behind? And, um, well, and the answer is that there is no one 
government. You know, we, we know that when, when people say, oh, well, the federal government, and I'm like, all right, well, clearly you've never worked in it because there is no the yeah. federal government. It, it, is, it is everything from, you know, there is the, like the quality of the technology you would see in something like 24, and then it's, it's not, it's definitely not. And, yeah. and Carol Lenig, I think the, the Washington Post journalist just has a new book out about the Secret Service that um, is pretty concerning about the level of technology investment and just general investment yeah. in that, that particularly important law enforcement division of the federal government. Yeah, early in my career, a mentor of mine said, uh, said about the Defense Department that this is an organization that can make a bullet hit a bullet. That's how sophisticated they can be, but they don't have a clean audit opinion. No. You know, so there's a, there's a, um, you know, you're right. There's a reality in terms of where, uh, where we're ahead of the curve and where we have more work to do. So um, I think it's hard for people to hold those two diametrically opposed concepts in their head at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's, 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 it's a complicated narrative and people like simple narratives uh often so you uh, have to think of the scale with you know two million civilian employees and you know uh four trillion dollar budgets and um uh tens of thousands of of uh, operational locations you know uh it's if is if you if you really step back and admire the scale of it you can understand then why you will have such discontinuous kind of um yeah uh, you know, nature of its operations. You know, I, I, I cheated on you, Dan, and went on a different podcast um, that the Atlantic sponsored with, BC, with my company, BCG. Well, then you're not cheating on me because that's true. our relationship with the Atlantic. Yes, that's true. But the, one, the first question they asked me is, what is the purpose of government? And the way I answered it was, I, I kind of, I said, I went back to the Wild West and I said, government like, to, like helps eliminate chaos. It, it, it creates order as its, as its first imperative. And it seems to me like where we should be able to make a bullet hit a bullet is in that core most mission. And in this cyber, like to bring the conversation full circle, like that's where the government needs to step in because these cyber threats will create chaos. And it's the government's core responsibility to help prevent that. And so, um, you know, we could decide as a government where we need to invest and make a bullet hit a bullet. And I think in cyber resiliency and cyber defense, this was a wake up call. This is an area where we need to, to really lean in. It's true. I, I also think it, it, it kind of reminds, um, it reminds folks of the fact that having a mechanism to do things in an, in an analog capacity as well as a digital one, you know, a fallback to an analog capacity is critical. And the fact that, um, you know, that Colonial couldn't, you know, run their pipeline in an anal analog way, I hope someone over there is thinking about that, like, okay, well, if that happens again, yeah. how do we not expose ourselves to perpetual vulnerability from someone accidentally clicking on uh, a phishing email that, that increasingly looks more and more and more like something that comes yeah. from the inside? They're going to have to print out those, those manuals. You print out the manuals, exactly right. <laughs> and then, to, you of know, course, it's that simple, right, Dan? Run some drills, run some drills on how you operate it and, and maybe even thinking, you know, putting a, 
putting a mechanical flow meter on these things. So if, if it really yeah. is important to figure out what the volume's coming and, through. And on the financial piece, there should be insurance or underwriting for the scenario in which you've lost the ability to track the transactions associated with the with the flow of, of fuel um, for some period of time. You know, so so you know that okay, we're in this world where we're not, we can't account for it, but we're insured for that or something like that. So again, I'm I'm just brainstorming here, but there are solutions that can help at least mitigate some of the the, the downtime. Yeah, and, and and maybe there's some way to then also have a broader conversation about the social responsibility of cryptocurrencies and those who are sponsoring and 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 promoting and developing them. Um, you know, what was the level of mayhem that was caused by this kind of ransomware attack that was then supported by the ability to actually transfer funds in a way that makes it hard to trace? Oh, social responsibility for technology. That's a small issue. Yeah, maybe, maybe we can have Mark Zuckerberg on it. Yeah, maybe we could do half an episode on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there. exactly. All right, Dan. As right, always. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Thank you. It's good to see you. And uh, uh, thanks, Billy Mitchell and the Fed Scoop team for helping us find Marty too on the drop of a pen. Yeah, and to the and to the Fed Scoop team for the podcast, which is doing great, and I still get tremendous feedback on it and um it's it's i'm really appreciative to them for helping us make it happen and and mostly for for billy for all his hard work making sure it all comes together and, and billy looks like he's in the office are you in the office billy i am wow all right and you look like you're in your office now, i am right? i've been in my office for for pretty much the whole time because i was the only person in the office it was covid safer than being at home frankly Okay. Well, I'm hoping, I think like by next month or so, I'm going to be back. I'm, I, you know, you know, fully vaccinated, but waiting yeah. for the rest of the world to catch up. No, we got, we got people beginning to come in. We're doing a testing protocol and vaccination requirements. It's all, it's all very complicated, but we're, we're finding our way just like everyone else. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Dan. All right. Thank you both. Thanks. Bye-bye.